Well, good morning. I'm going to open your Bibles to the book of Luke, chapter 23. Spent uh, over eight weeks, I think, in chapter 22. Now we move on to chapter 23. How many of you do the whole New Year's resolution thing? Raise your hand. None of you. Wow. Just a bunch of fatalistic Calvinists all over the place. <laughs> Tell you what, I do New Year's resolutions. I'm, I need some excuse to be intentional, at least for a little bit of time. You know, I was, I was actually thinking that it'd probably be better, and I haven't done this, but I was actually thinking it would be interesting to go to your spouse or people that are close to you and say, what do you think my New Year's resolutions should be for this year? It would be an interesting conversation. Feel free to, to do that. Uh, <laughs> probably won't, but you go ahead. No, uh, what if I told you that, you know, I was just going to assign one to you. I was just going to, I was just going to pray that God give you this, this one particular change in your life. And what if I told you that that, that particular change is that within a year's time, you would be more bold, have more Christ-centered confidence, you would have more stillness and peace in your heart, you would be more calm and less anxious. Well, if that, if that was the, the net effect of the next year, would you be... Would you be happy with that? I want to tell some of you people, some of you people say, I have anxiety, you know, like I struggle with anxiety. I want to tell you folks, I'm praying for you. God told me to pray for you, and I've been praying for you, and I'm going to keep praying for you. I know that God's going to do something in your life related to this issue in this year, perhaps even today. We're going to talk today about boldness. And when I say boldness, I mean all of the things I just described. Boldness isn't just... Um, you know, being, being loud or, or, or being assertive. Boldness is just this, this biblical centeredness that keeps you firm and assured and, and, and honestly courageous in the right kinds of ways. Uh, Thayer's, which is a biblical dictionary, defines boldness as a freedom, an unreservedness, uh, an openness without concealment, without ambiguity, um, without the use of figures and comparisons, just, a, just a, a truthfulness, a directness, an authenticity, free from fear, confidence, a cheerful courage. That's what I'm praying that God will give you this year, and I believe that God's going to use the passage that we'll be in both this week and next week to help you grow in biblical boldness. Now, I just want to sell this quality a little bit more. I want you to see how important this is, how valuable it is. When Paul asked the Ephesians to pray for him in chapter 6. Now, remember, the book of Ephesians has some of the most profound prayers that we'll find in the Bible. Paul is praying some heroic things for the people of God related to their experience of God's special manifest presence. But in Ephesians 6, he actually asked them to pray for him. And this is what he says. He says, pray for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Paul's boldness was a mark of his ministry. I want you to think about this. A part-time tent maker, an entrepreneur, if you will, transformed the Western world. Right? God used one guy primarily uh, above all other guys to transform the Western world, to introduce Western civilization. And it was this man who's probably is, you know, top five dis 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 descriptions. If you were to do a job interview with Paul, you'd say, give me your strengths and weaknesses. One of his strengths, one of the things that God had given him was boldness. 
uh, in Acts 14.3, it says, So they remained a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Uh, at the very end, the summary of Paul's ministry as he is in house arrest in, in the city of Rome, uh, Acts 28.30.31 says, He lived there two whole years at his own expense, and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, I'm going to sell this at one other level, and that's just simply to say this. Boldness, this, this, this confidence in Christ, if the Lord were to give that to you this year in a new way, not only would it make your life better, but it would make your testimony better. In the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 13. Uh, earlier in that chapter, the very same leaders who once ran away from conflict in the Gospels are now standing firm in the Gospel and speaking Christ truthfully to the crowd. And, and the leaders who crucified Jesus are, it says, greatly annoyed by Peter and John, understatement, uh, greatly annoyed by Peter and John's bold proclamation of the Gospel. And it says this in verse 13 of chapter 4. When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. So what I'd like you to do, we're going to go back to Acts 4 in a little bit. So if, you wanna, if you're already there, I'd encourage you to kind of hold your place. But now turn to the passage, our main passage, as we progress through the book of Luke, to Luke chapter 23. At first, you're not going to see the connection at all between Luke 23, 1 through 23 or 1 through 30 or so. Uh, you're not going to see the connection at all between this passage and the idea of Christian boldness. But just wait for it because I, I promise you that it's there. So Luke chapter 23, verse 1. Now, just as a reminder, in the end of Luke 22, Jesus had stood before the Sanhedrin as the Thursday night turned into Friday morning. He's standing before the Sanhedrin. That's this ruling class of, of Jewish leaders. And they are kind of uh, conducting a, a mock trial, a sham trial, if you will, to find Jesus guilty and worthy of punishment, worthy of execution. The thing is, they can't kill him. They don't have the legal authority to kill him. So they need to bring him to this legal uh, authority named Pilate, who is a representative of Rome. And so they do that in, beginning in verse 1. Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod. Herod's, Herod's a king of this whole region, a Jewish man who kind of rules as a king by the permission of Rome. So Pilate hears that Jesus is a part of Herod's jurisdiction. And Herod happened to be, verse 7 tells us, in Jerusalem at the time. So he takes him to Herod. Verse 8, When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he would heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. 
And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arrayed him in splendid clothing, and he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people, and after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of anything, of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried together, Away with this man, release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they had asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. What does this passage have to do with boldness? In this passage, Jesus is sleep deprived. His body is already running on fumes. He's experiencing the adrenaline dump that came from pouring his heart out in anguish in the garden. Has already been beaten up by the temple guards. And in this passage, he barely says anything. So what does this passage have to do with boldness? Why would God, how would God use this passage to impart boldness? Well, I'd ask you to hold your place in the book, in the book of Acts in chapter 4. And if you look there, I'll show you the connection. Acts chapter 4. Let me read a little bit of this to you. And listen for the story we just read in, Acts 20, in Luke 23 showing up in this passage. Just listen. Acts chapter 4. Let me just read, start in verse 23. This is back to Peter and John. They just stood before some of the very same authorities that Jesus had stood before. They were released. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they'd heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word in boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So what's happening in this passage 
is that they are taking the events in Luke 23, the trial of Jesus in Luke 23, and applying Christ's trial to their circumstances and arriving at the conclusion that the people plotted and their plot contained only what God had predestined it to contain. They're concluding that the people, the enemy's agenda against God and his anointed is limited completely within the realm of God's sovereignty. So they're seeing two things essentially as they're looking back at this passage, as they're looking back at this moment when Jesus was tried. The first one they're seeing is this, the probability of suffering, the probability of suffering. Jesus had warned them multiple times, you're going to suffer because you're following me. In John 15, 20, he says, remember the word that I spoke to you, no servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you as well. If they kept my word, uh, if, if they kept my word, they will keep yours as well. But they will treat you like this on account of my name because they do not know the one who sent me. In fact, Luke 21, Jesus says to his disciples, they will lay hands on you and persecute you and deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. So one of the reasons why these folks were bold is they already knew there was a strong possibility that they would experience suffering as a result of following Jesus. At the beginning of a new year, let's just be clear. If we choose to live a godly life, we will experience suffering. Now, if we choose not to live a godly life, we'll experience a different kind of suffering, right? Suffering's a part of this world, but following with Jesus does bring about its own cost. So at one level, one of the reasons why the disciples are emboldened is because they look back and see that they are part of the very same pattern that their Savior predicted. They would experience suffering because they were following Jesus. But that's not really the main reason for their boldness. It's not so much the possibility of suffering that makes them bold, but rather the certainty of sovereignty. It's the certainty of God's sovereignty that really makes them bold. And that's what God is doing in Luke 23. You know, you read this passage and you think, why do I need to know that Jesus went to Pilate and then to Herod? Why do I need to know all these details? Why did God uh, inspire the scriptures to include all of this information? What's God doing with this? What does he want to do with this in the world? What does he want to do with this in me? And we see the answer to that in Acts 4. God wants to display through the story of Jesus' trial his absolute sovereignty over the most clever, shrewd, and conspiring forces we see in the scriptures. God wants to prove his absolute sovereignty over some really nasty people, over some really terrible suffering. He wants to show us that, yeah, suffering is probable, but sovereignty is Certain. Listen to Acts 24 again. When they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand 
in your plan had predestined to take place. The lesson that the apostles took from this extended treatment of Jesus' trial in Luke 23 is that God was in charge. Even though it appeared that there was at that moment a perfect storm of cooperation between the Jews and the Romans, between the leaders of the Jews and the leaders of the Romans. They concluded that God had predestined all that the enemies thought they were plotting. Nothing more, nothing less. Friends, there's, there's two things you just can't repeat to a human being often enough. God loves you and God is sovereign. You just can't tell other human beings that often enough. You will think that you have over-repeated yourself and become redundant long before the other person has soaked in that God loves them and that he is sovereign. Human beings can't hear these two things enough. You know, that second point, this tendency that we have to forget that God is sovereign is such a strange phenomenon if you really stop to think about it. I was thinking about this problem as I was falling asleep the other day. That's when I have most of my good thoughts. If you've ever thought these sermons were especially dreamy, that's why. And as I was falling asleep, I thought, you know, one of the great problems that surfaces in caring for souls is how quickly they forget on a functional level that God is sovereign. It's, it's, really, it's really one of the biggest challenges of caring for souls is how quickly people forget that God is sovereign. And I thought, well, this is just such a strange thing. At this point, maybe I'd snored a couple times. You know, if, if you didn't believe there was a God, then it would make sense, of course, not to believe in this idea of something or someone controlling everything. But you would think that as soon as you decide to believe in God, that the whole sovereignty thing just comes with the deal. It, doesn't it seem kind of like a package deal? Like the whole concept of God would, you'd think, naturally include the idea that this God is in charge of everything. Otherwise, he wouldn't be God. Why in the world do we keep separating God from God's sovereignty? How does this happen? Because categorically, logically, they seem to be the exact same thing. I mean, this is sort of like talking about wet water and hot fire. To say that God is sovereign just is actually a redundancy. But what you'll find very often in your own life, if you've really thought about it, is, is that you still believe in God. You just stop believing that he's in charge of everything. Which is so strange. Because, like I said, the two things seem to be inseparable. Friends, the only explanation I can find, at least at 12 o'clock at night, is that this is due to human pride. It has to be pride. It has to be a subconscious fashioning of gods in our own image that we use, that we still apply the big God name to. The only logical and theologically consistent explanation I can offer is that this constant decoupling of, I believe in God, but I don't believe that God is sovereign, this constant decoupling of these two terms stems from us creating lesser gods in our own image. But we just call them Yahweh. Right? We have this chronic tendency to create gods in our own image. And if you would look back, maybe you're there right now, you believe in God, 
but that God isn't very powerful in any functional way to keep you from being anxious, to make you bold and courageous? How, how does that happen? Well, I would suggest that the most likely culprit is that you've created a God in your own image that has all the ego and self-importance of a God, but none of the power. And man, we do that all the time. Where does this moment come from? Because we don't need to be reminded that fire is hot. We don't need to be reminded that water is wet. We shouldn't need to be reminded that God is sovereign. Why do we need to be reminded that God is sovereign? The fact that we need to be reminded that God is sovereign tells us a lot about us. But my final thought before falling asleep that night was, but the fact that he keeps reminding us tells us a lot about him. What a faithful God. What a faithful God to cut through all of our nonsense and to connect the two things that should never logically ever be disconnected. What a faithful God to say, oh, uh, you might want to remember in your high belief of me that I'm in charge of it all. So we're going to start this new year, this week and next week, by focusing on God's sovereign power. Because, like I said, you can't remind people often enough of God's sovereignty. If we would move through Luke 22 and 23, through Jesus' trial from Thursday to Friday morning, we would see his unshakable but quiet confidence in God's sovereignty. And when we see how the apostles responded to Jesus' trial, we see that they responded by saying that that trial is absolute proof in God's sovereignty. So let's talk about what we mean by God's sovereignty. What do the apostles mean when they say in Acts 4.24, Sovereign Lord? And why do they say, as is often said in Scripture, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them? Why does that phrase keep showing up all the time? What do they mean in verse 28 by the word predestined? Uh, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You know, hopefully you have enough self-awareness to realize how slippery the concept of God's sovereignty is for you. And hopefully you're eager to review it. You need it. I need it. And maybe some of you, this is exciting to me, maybe some of you haven't really thought about God's sovereignty. Now that's fun. Just just a warning. It'll, it, it's it's going to blow your mind and also feel like you got punched in the stomach. Sitting the other day writing this message at my kitchen table, looking out at the oak tree out my outside the, the window, and every leaf on that oak tree is blowing in the wind a slightly unique way. And I'm realizing that the God of the universe is telling each one of those leaves to do what he wants it to do, not just on that tree, but on every tree in the whole world. And it's an effortless action for the sovereign God. These are the truths that are going to make us confident and calm when they begin to have a functional effect in our lives as they clearly did in the apostles' lives in Acts 4. So let's re-enroll in God's Sovereignty 101 for a minute and start asking, what do we mean when we say, when, when, when we say sovereignty? What do we mean when, when we say sovereign Lord? What do we mean when we say predestined? Well, let me just give you the two kind of... Uh, the, so there's this sort of theological, philosophical, logical architecture to what it would mean to be truly sovereign. And I want you to hear it 
And then I want you to see how the scriptures use it consistently as a way of proclaiming this idea that God is in charge of everything. Just, just two, two kind of essential points. We'll talk about this more next week. But the first one is this. When we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean that there is a ruler without rivals. A ruler without rivals. What we mean is, is that there are no competing forces with which God must contend. I was listening to someone talk about God's sovereignty on a podcast this week. And he was saying that when he was growing up, he had this sense that God was in sort of this, this competition with human free will and with the devil. And that God would win, but not after a heck of a knockdown and drag out. You know, everybody was going to emerge from this with a bloodied lip. But, 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 every, but, but you know, God would win. But theologian John Murray, who I think is, writes really well about the sovereignty of God in particular, says this. It is not as if there were a host of lesser deities over which God is supreme and therefore demands from us supreme worship and devotion. It is rather that he alone is God. So one essential element when we talk about God's sovereignty is just that he is alone in his power. There is no com- competition. He is a ruler without rivals. In Deuteronomy, uh, this, this idea is pounded into the people in the book of Deuteronomy as they go to possess the promised land and as they go into an environment that will feel like God has rivals. This idea of God's oneness, his, his singularity is pounded into them. In Deuteronomy 4, it says, The Lord, he is God. There is no one else beside him. He is God in heaven above and upon the earth beneath. There is none else uh, the beginning of the, the Shema in, in, in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord our God is one. Deuteronomy 32. See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God with me. Second Kings 19.15. Thou art the God, even thou alone, of all the kingdoms of the heavens. So when we talk about the sovereignty of God, one of the things we mean is that God is a ruler without rivals. He is not in a competition with anyone. He stands alone as the God. We also mean that he is the creator without causation. He created all things. Nothing exists that did not come into existence because God did not will it to do so. Everything that exists came into existence because of the will of God. And there are just millions of scriptures that I could read that discuss this particular point. Psalm 33 does as good a job as any place describing this idea. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the hosts of them by the breath of his mouth. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. God made the heavens and the earth. By his spirit the heavens were garnished. He laid the foundations of the earth. By wisdom he founded the earth. By understanding he established the heavens His hand stretched out the heavens and all of their hosts he commanded. Heaven and earth his hand made. And so all these things came to be by his divine word. So when we talk about God's sovereignty, we mean two things and a lot of other things, but two main things. That God is the ruler without rivals. He is in competition with no one and that he has created everything. All everything has come into existence by his hand. And then you begin to ask, what are the implications of those two truths? And they cover your entire life. 
all the way down to the leaves on oak trees in December. God is alone in his ruling power. And the book of Acts chapter 4, when the apostles are, are, are building this, this fire of worship around the sovereignty of God, they use some terms that reference these ideas. They say in Acts 24, Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord is kind of Bible code for the ruler without rivals. The God. The one. The person in charge of all things. And then they appeal to him as creator. Sovereign Lord who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them. You ever wonder why we we always reference the seas in the Bible? Well, in, in Jewish idiom, the seas were this really scary, chaotic place. They often represent judgment because they don't even understand totally how they work. These are total landlubbers. And, uh, and so the seas are representative of the unknown, of the vastness, of the questionable, of the chaotic. And so when they say sovereign Lord, they mean ruler without rivals. And when they say who created the heavens and the earth and the seas, they mean everything, even stuff we don't know about, even, even quarks. He created it all. He's the creator without causation and the ruler without rivals. And what does the ruler without rivals and the creator without causation, what does this God of massive, unparalleled, unquestionable sovereignty do with all that power? Back to Luke 23. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. But after examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod. For he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will punish and release him. But they cried out together, Away with this man. Release to us Barabbas a man who has been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has been done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked, but delivered Jesus over to their will. What is the ruler without rivals, the creator without causation, do with all this power? He sends his son by whom all things were created, for whom all things were created, in whom all things held together, to die. <laughs> what? What does the sovereign Lord do with every ounce of his sovereign power? He sends his son to die for the sins of his enemies. He sent in his sovereignty, his his eternal plan that he predestined in perfect wisdom and orchestrated through trillions of providences we cannot count or trace 
his perfect plan be exercised, the, f- the full expression of his perfect sovereignty was to, over thousands of years, orchestrate the crucifixion of his only begotten son to save his enemies from the judgment they deserved. Martin Luther was a man who faced a lot of persecutions and a lot of hardship. He wrote a question I want to ask you, especially those of you who are identifying as people who struggle with anxiety. Some of you don't know you are, but uh, especially those who do. He wrote this. How can you be certain and secure unless you are persuaded that he knows and wills certainly, infallibly, immutably, and necessarily, unless you are certain that he will perform what he promises? The God of the universe is sovereign, he has no rivals. He is over all of creation. And what does he do with his power? He sends his son to die at the hands of men expressing or thinking they're expressing their power in meekness to redeem you from hell and to adopt you into his family. And you cannot be certain or secure until you see that. The the, the universe is ruled by that kind of God. In our text, we see these two ideas that God is a ruler without rivals and that he is uh, a creator without causation. But let me just add a third. We'll talk about it more next week. God is also a lover without longing. What do I mean by that? Part of, part of understanding the sovereignty of God is to understand the freedom of God. God is entirely free of any need. He's, he's fully happy in and of himself. He's not motivated by need. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need your worship. He doesn't need your work. God doesn't need you to do anything for him. He is perfectly sovereign and over all things. And let me just be clear. Every human heart I'm looking at right now needs to be loved by one person who doesn't need anything from them. And there's only one person who can do that. Every other relationship, it may be a great one, it may be a terrible one, every other relationship is at some level defined by you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. No matter how noble and beautiful they appear, there is always built into human relationship a love based on a need for the other. Except the sovereign Lord who doesn't need a thing from you and gave everything to love you nonetheless. The sovereign God of the universe uses all of his power to love you. That's his agenda. 
And he doesn't, he can't receive anything from you in return because you have nothing to offer. This morning as I was praying for this time, I just asked the Lord that he would lodge what our truths probably everybody's heard in one way or another deeper inside our hearts. Make these the ballast of our souls in a new way today and this year. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to pray for you. And I'd like us to just bow our heads and take a moment and think through what God might want to do in our hearts today. So let's just let's just get quiet for a moment. Do some business with God. Maybe someone here is not actually experienced being loved by someone who doesn't need anything in return. Friends, even your parents need their things in return. I'm, I'm a parent. I'm a child. I can tell you it, it, there is no human relationship where that doesn't happen. And you don't know what it's like to just be loved freely by someone who has no need for you. Jesus entered into this world to offer himself up as a sacrifice to pay for the sins that separate you from this love without limits. Your sin, your refusal to obey God, even though you know what God wants many times, your secrecy, your inner treason, (laughs) your judging others, your harshness toward people who love you, your impatience, your secret sensuality, all of it is separating you from the one being who can love you like you need to be loved. And so this enormous sovereign God who's in charge of everything completely and fully (coughs) sent His Son to live a righteous life and die as a substitute to pay for all of those sins so that you could be brought near to him and be his son or his daughter forever. And you can do nothing to deserve that. All you can do is acknowledge it. Acknowledge the truth of it. And call out to God saying, I I believe it. Some of you today have anxiety. It's, It's possibly partly biological. It's possibly partly circumstantial. But let me tell you. Do not write off the cause the Bible points to repeatedly. As if you're above forgetting that God is sovereign. You are not above forgetting God is sovereign. You are not so mature as to be beyond forgetting that God is sovereign. You are a human being. You are a leaky bucket. You need this put back in your heart. Lord God, 
in your perfect Holy Spirit. Work in our hearts today. Free us, Lord, from this faulty theology which somehow signals that we believe you exist, but functionally doubts that you're actually in charge of the leaves on the tree and the grass in the field. Free us, Lord, from this faulty, sinful, doubting, and fill us, Lord, with godly confidence in the sovereign Lord of the universe who loves us and gave himself up for us. In the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen. The table is set today for you to come and be reminded and experience all that we described in a more tangible way. So today, if you have placed your faith in Jesus as the sacrifice and payment for your sins, I want to invite you to come to the table today and participate in what the Lord has provided as a tangible means of being reminded that God loves you and that he sent his son to die for you so that you could live in his sovereign love forever. So come.